Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode three in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 17th of February. And Leon, uh, this week we're talking to Mike Santonis. That's right. Mike Santonis is the Vice President of Technology Strategy at CrowdStrike Asia Pacific. And he's going to be talking to us all about security in the, and what the continuing rise in malware mean for organisations. Yeah, very interesting it is. Uh, Mike's an expert in this area and he's got a lot to tell us. And then after that, we're talking to Shane Oliver. That's right. We'll be talking to Shane all about what's coming out of the profit season, which has been a bumper profit season, and what that means for the market uh, looking ahead. Looks pretty good, actually. Yeah, after a bit of gloom. So let's listen to Mike Santonis. Mike Santonis, uh, you're Vice President of Technology Strategy at CrowdStrike for Asia Pacific, and uh, the company's just set up in Australia. Tell us about what CrowdStrike does and uh, how you see the future in your area. Well, for those that are unfamiliar with, with CrowdStrike, we are a security technology company with a focus on stopping breaches. Uh, what I mean by that is we're a leader in the endpoint protection space. We're, we're one of the fastest growing vendors in this particular area, in, in one of the fastest growing segments in the cybersecurity market. And from a from a business perspective, we've experienced growth of more than 2,400% over the past three years. Uh, and we've opened offices now in London and Sydney to support a lot of the global footprint. Our focus is combining next generation antivirus together with endpoint detection and response as well as managed hunting uh, delivered as a cloud service and we're the only vendors to be doing that. So now you, you basically deal in the business and enterprise area I think, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So then security is of course high on the agenda for everybody. As businesses go deeper and deeper into the cloud, what do they need to look for and how can they protect themselves? It's an interesting question because if we if we take a step back and look at the industry as a whole, uh, as well as the threat landscape, uh, whilst there's so much focus on cybersecurity right now, it's pretty hard to make the case that the internet has become a, a much safer place when we read more and more about uh, companies getting breached every day. Um, it's an epidemic problem uh, that impacts pretty much every sector of the global economy. Companies in virtually every industry uh, and every size have been subjected to attack. So it's a pretty uh, challenging uh, landscape out there. From a cloud perspective, um, well, we look at the cloud a couple of different ways. The cloud provides so much benefit. There's the obvious benefits from a security perspective where only a cloud-driven model can deliver the updates and the solution rollout in hours instead of days and weeks, which is typically the case with legacy solutions. And only cloud-driven security can provide um, crowdsourced threat intelligence that companies can use in, in real time to stop breaches whilst it's happening. But more importantly to us, it's critical to use cloud-based technologies uh, which can record every execution event in real time and transmit it to the cloud where an adversary can't easily destroy it uh, without getting caught. Uh, everything the, the attacker does, every technique, every tool they use is tracked and, and recorded and ultimately exposed. And that's one of the, the core reasons why CrowdStrike decided from day one to build uh, the product uh, platform that we call Falcon, our next generation endpoint security technology as a cloud-based platform. Uh, this 
this way was the only way we could ensure that we would instantly crowdsource adversary tradecraft intelligence in the cloud and we were able to learn and, and evolve from every attack and every attempt against our technology. Uh, so we provide that benefit to the end user in real time. What, one of the big issues, of course, is that the uh, cyber, cyber crooks seem to be way ahead of uh, regulators and attempts to control them. They are. It's, uh, it's that cat and mouse game and uh, unfortunately you know there's that saying where the attacker just needs to find one hole to get into the network whereas the defender needs to protect against all of them and uh, one of the challenges I look at uh, from a technology perspective is always looking to see if the technology that end users use is it keeping up and I think one of the challenges today is that most cyber security technologies rely on what we call signatures or, or what's also referred to as indicators of compromise to block known bad files, to block known attacks. The challenge with that approach, which is what the industry has been built on, is that relying on signatures, they go stale very fast, uh, which is why we have so many problems. And what I mean by that is if there's a new attack technique that that a a hacker comes up with, uh, you have to wait for a signature to be written for the products that you use to detect that attack in real time. And and that challenge is that the, the malware authors are changing their attacks so quickly, you just basically can't rely on that traditional uh, approach of security. It's proven time and time again to not work. Well, that would indicate, wouldn't you, that you're always playing catch-up with the malware operators? Well, you either play catch up if you're in the signature business or, or you change the game. And that's our focus. Uh, our CrowdStrike, our solution is fully cloud-based as mentioned. And instead of looking at the signatures or the indicators of compromise, which are reactive, we focus on indicators of attack. So we take a more proactive approach uh, to security. And what we're doing is we're looking for patterns or the effects of what the adversary or the attacker is trying to accomplish. And then you block based on that. So you're trying to predict based on what they are attempting to do. You're not looking for every specific attack time in and, and time out, which is is the problem and why people are failing uh, constantly. So you're actually watching what the attackers are knocking on the door and testing a door's locks rather than coming straight into the room and ripping away your, your assets. Yeah, look, exactly. That's a, that's a great analogy. So how does CloudStrike do that? I mean, this seems to be a whole new bag compared with some of the earlier protection systems well there's there's a number of different ways that that we do that as mentioned we 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 have focused on on cloud technology Um, we need to make sure that we focus on recording everything that an attacker may be trying to do to the organization Uh, every tool and technique that they're using is tracked and recorded and from a from a technology perspective uh, this way even as we now have to assume if the attacker manages to get a copy of the solution they can't realistically test it offline in their lab without immediately revealing all of their tradecraft and that's the beauty of the approach that we've taken. We've seen examples of hackers that have got access to every publicly available technology out there. They test their techniques and when they think they can bypass the existing tools, they release the attack out there on the internet. Uh, That doesn't work in our particular example because everything that they do, we reveal and we track and we record it. Um, If they disconnect completely from the cloud, uh, they won't know how their attack will truly perform in the real world. So, 
what this actually means, if you think about what the industry calls a, a zero-day attack, that's when an attack is first used uh, on the internet or against an organization. Um, a true zero-day is not when a vendor or a security researcher discloses that they've discovered a new attack. Uh, for me, a true zero-day is when the attacker uses an exploit or a technique that no one's ever seen before. The beauty of the CrowdStrike approach is that we expose that tradecraft immediately and we can start learning from that uh, and protecting and providing solutions for that. Um, and then the other piece is, as mentioned, we look for that indicator of attack. We're not focused on the, the rat race game of trying to write signatures for every single piece of malware. And there's there's hundreds of millions that are now uh, publicly available. We look for the intent of what the attacker is trying to do in real time. Are the malware operators becoming smarter? Well, I think they've always been smart. Uh, you know, I, I, I've never agreed with that statement around, you know, the, the pimply kid in the basement who, who's trying to do things for notoriety. They've always been smart. Uh, what I think has actually happened is that the landscape has become a lot easier for the average attacker. Uh, you can download a malware kit. You can download a, a hacking tool. Uh, you don't have to be the expert like, you know, the small group of, of pioneers in this particular space. You can just reuse other people's code. But that said, we are actively tracking more than 80 adversary groups that include nation-state adversaries, e-crime actors and, and hacktivists. Um, since the start of the year, we've seen over a 700% increase in the detection of, of ransomware that's targeting pretty much every uh, type of organization. And we're seeing just such a vast ecosystem of, of interconnected services, actors and schemes, um, and some pretty complex relationships between individuals and groups whose primary goal is to generate revenue um, uh, targeting people on the internet. So the cyber criminal uh, community is obviously extremely well funded these days, it's, uh, and they can afford to buy the best talent on the planet if they, if they can get contact with them. That's true and that's one of the challenges and, and we do certainly see some extremely intelligent, very well educated people in, in some parts of the world that don't necessarily have the employment opportunities that they would in the US or the UK or Australia and uh, it's it's just too easy for them to carry out uh, e-crime um, and get away with it and unfortunately they go down that path and, and it's, uh, it's a problem that just grows every week. Does the arrival of the awareness here now, but the Internet of Things make corporate and the corporates would obviously use this, uh, make them more vulnerable, do you think? Um, look, I don't think it, in some ways it makes them more vulnerable. Uh, we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, a recent denial of service attack that highlighted the importance of effectively managing cybersecurity risks. And obviously, uh, cybersecurity is brought to public attention when there's a large-scale attack. Uh, in this particular example, uh, Internet of Things devices that had basic default passwords were recruited to become a, a larger botnet, a larger group of, of devices that were used to send a massive flood of internet traffic, taking out one of the, the world's largest ISPs. Yeah, in that particular example, that's some basic uh, practices that were that were misstepped. Um, and an organization that is starting to, to 
onboard more and more devices needs to do some basic hygiene to make sure that these devices are, are safe and secure. Uh, it just changes the focus. I don't think it necessarily makes them any more or less secure. I guess the one of the big challenges that organizations are, are trying to deal with today is the traditional perimeter has really, uh, in, in many ways, disappeared. Uh, in the past, we had a firewall, we had some intrusion prevention, we had all of our devices behind these um, th- these con- security controls. But as the perimeter becomes less relevant to the enterprise with the mobilization of the workforce, and as we start to use encryption, uh, we need to focus more on keeping content safe, not on defining a network perimeter. So it's awareness also in the corporate uh, area or generally around the world that is probably your best uh, protection, is it? Well, it, it's it's critical. It's, it's knowing that uh, these issues have escalated to an inflection point that we've never really seen before. Uh, and at an organization, level, you have to be extremely vigilant and, and continually review your, your your networks for sign of intrusion activity. Uh, and and it's, it's not only creating a, a security architecture and a security policy up front and getting the business evolved, which is all good practice. We have to go beyond that today and always carry out compromised assessments. You need to check your systems for irregular activity and indicators that maybe you've been already breached. Um, you need to constantly hunt for, for adversaries and check your security policies and procedures and make sure really ultimately that you've got defences that can detect modern threats um, that will be facing every organisation. And the question then is, how aware do you think say, just for starters, uh, Australian businesses are? Uh, look, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, it's 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 always easy, and, and hindsight is a wonderful thing, but it's it's easy to kind of point the finger and say, oh, government should be doing more and this vertical industry should be doing more. Uh, I certainly see examples in certain verticals, especially in banking and finance, of some phenomenally good bra- uh, best practice as I travel the world. Um, I've seen real great success stories you know, you look at what other organisations like Telstra has done with Mike Burgess uh, at the helm, and you kind of have to take your hat off and say this is some some world class uh, security uh, principles that uh, he and his team have put into to Telstra as an example. But the flip side is always other organisations and industries that could certainly be doing a lot more. But I think you could say that largely of anywhere you you go, there's there's examples of of great practice and areas that we we certainly need to improve. I think one of the biggest thing if I if I made a general statement is a lot of the technologies that people are using are simply not keeping up with the uh, with the attacks they're certainly not keeping up with uh, the attack techniques that are out there and uh, I know in the Australian market we're working with a number of organizations that have suffered or they are in the middle of a breach and, and frankly their existing solutions uh, aren't helping them so they've found out that they've been compromised through a third party and their existing tools haven't even raised a single alarm to let them know and and uh, simply that's just not good enough I thank you very much Mike Santonis for discussion Discussing with us. Appreciate your time. Well, all these guys, they know their business. We're talking to them. It's really, really important. Hacking and malware has become such a key issue now. Even involved in the presidential election. That's right. And that's very creepy. Now, Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, the profit reporting season's been pretty good so far. Profits are coming in and much higher than expected. What's your evaluation of it? 
Well, I guess we've always got to be a bit careful early in the reporting season because often you get this pattern where the um, companies with good news go first and then the, the ones who tail off at the end, that's the end of February in this case, um, may not be quite as good. Um, but that said, I think uh, many investors have become used to the last couple of years where profits in Australia have been falling, whereas that uh, that part of the cycle is now over. We've seen a massive turnaround in commodity prices, for example, overnight, the iron ore price at uh, 9 $22 a tonne, well up from the low at the end of 2015, where it got as low as $37, $38 a tonne. Um, but obviously, that surge in the iron ore price, which particularly occurred through the second half of last year, which is, of course, the period for which this reporting season relates to, that um, is underpinning a strong rebound in the resources sector. So the big driver of the slump in profits over the last couple of years in Australia has been the slump in the resources sector. That's now well and truly reversing as commodity prices have bounced back quite strongly, in fact. And at the same time, you're seeing the non-mining part of the economy, in other words, the industrials, uh, let's exclude banks for the time being, the industrials sort of continuing to see reasonable profit growth, not fantastic, but it looks like it's averaging around 5%. But for the companies that are reported so far, it looks even stronger than that. And of course, for the banks, it's sort of uh, still a bit difficult. But the overall picture is that we're going from two years of falling profits to a financial year, which is this financial year where profits look to be up around 17% or so. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Uh, the, I noticed that a lot of the uh, houses still aren't expecting uh, the iron ore price will stay that high. It's, uh, they're saying it's unsustainable. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, defi- the iron ore price has defied predictions. It certainly has. And uh, I guess I've also been of the view that it probably won't be sustained at these levels. It'll step, step back. I've been thinking maybe a fall back to $70 a tonne, but uh, in the last week or so, it keeps going higher. So it's now above $90 a tonne. It's still well below the all-time high, which was way back in 2011, uh, when it got to about $190 a tonne. So we're still about $100 a tonne below the all-time high. But uh, I guess that's the wrong way of looking at it. You really need to look at where we've come from more recently. And we've certainly had a big rebound from the lows of 2015, when we were down below $40 a tonne. I think uh, it's often the case, though, that uh, when the consent census is one way, um, it's quite easy for the market to surprise. And that's what seems to be happening here, that as the global economy picks up a bit of pace, as the Chinese economy remains a lot stronger than feared, the so-called Chinese hard landing is still uh, still being waited for by many. And I don't think it's, it's going to come, at least not uh, in the near-term horizon. But as long as China remains reasonably solid, um, then that should underpin reasonable levels for the iron ore price. I'm still a bit loath to say that it keeps going up from here year because we do have more supply coming on and sooner or later the Chinese economy might slow down a little bit um, so it might set set back a little bit but probably before we get to that point we've got to see investment analysts uh, commodity analysts revise up their forecast to, to match current prices a bit more and maybe that will be a sign that we're at the top but at the moment we seem to be a fair way away from that. That's that's very interesting because uh, I mean the market has responded quite well. The Australian market's really doing quite well at the moment. It certainly is. It had a, a, a good run ultimately through last year. A year ago, it was in the doldrums, having fallen 20% from its uh, April 2015 high to the low in February a year ago. But uh, last year turned out to be a reasonably good year for the Australian share market. In fact, on average, it it outperformed most major global share markets, um, at least the global average. Um, Only the US uh, as a major market beat the Australian share market in terms of capital growth through last year. But of course, that strength uh, that we saw through particularly the last quarter of last 
last year has continued continued into January. We saw the Aussie market push up in the first few weeks of January. Maybe it got a bit ahead of itself um, as the Donald Trump worries started to uh, to uh, loom large. The Aussie market came off a little bit, but lately it's uh, it's on its way back up to the highs again, which is a good sign. And similarly, the American market's doing quite strongly too, uh, with the Donald Trump fears abating and uh, people are expecting tax cuts and infrastructure spending. Yeah, I think uh, US market probably has surprised many. Even even I would have thought that we might have gone through a bit of a consolidation in the early weeks of Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, maybe we had a little one, but it was just a very little one. It was just a couple of weeks where it went sideways and then, of course, broke out. And I think the uh, thing that many, the mistake that many of us making regarding Donald Trump is to perhaps put too much weight on some of the negative things that we'd, that he's doing, at least from our own perspective. You know, you think, well, it shouldn't be banning people from certain countries, all those sorts of things that's creating mayhem and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, share markets um, don't have a moral compass. They don't make those judgment calls as to whether that's a good or a bad thing to do. All that share market's interested in and financial markets is whether it uh, is, well, his policies are ultimately good for economic growth and profits. And so far on that front, the news has been reasonably good. He's obviously uh, added a bit to confidence in the US. US uh, corporate confidence is at relatively high levels. Um, and he's continuing to talk about and move towards deregulation, uh, talking about uh, you know, winding back some of the Dodd-Frank financial regulations, allowing the, uh, the Keystone XL petroleum or oil pipeline to be built, um, talking about tax cuts for corporates and possibly households. Um, and so those things, are, I guess, are greeted relatively positively by the markets. And, and that's the way we've got to look at it as investors. You've got to sort of put your moral cap aside to some degree if you're trying to work out where the market's going to go and then uh, focus on uh, you know, what his policies are saying in relation to that. And, and I think the other thing that we need to do in relation to Donald Trump is turn down the noise. He says a lot of things, but uh, and then does a backflip a little bit later. I just recall he once wanted to lock up Hillary Clinton. And of course, that was forgotten about pretty soon. Um, he initially said that the idea of a border adjustment tax in the US was too complicated. Now he seems to be a bit more supportive of it. He once called NATO just a few weeks ago now, NATO obsolete. And then, of course, more recently, has been a lot more supportive of it. So there is a tendency for a lot of the noise that comes out of Donald Trump to just that it's noise and indeed uh you know he's the possibility of a trade war with china has receded with him uh, now communicating with chinese leadership and uh conducting uh talks with uh shinzo abe as well that's certainly the case the uh one of the big threats was that he would embark on trade war with china and japan and asia generally but that's he seems to be backing away from that um uh talking about negotiating with those countries wanting uh, or accepting the one china policy in relation to china um, talking about a, a constructive relationship with mutual benefits with China, inviting Japan's PM Abe to play golf with him at his place in Florida, all this sort of stuff. That's uh, far more positive than um, might have been feared just a few weeks ago. So it seems as if he's going down a negotiation path, um, seeking for win-win solutions for both sides, which I think is a, is a, is a more positive angle than uh, had been feared. Indeed, Trump is still a businessman used to making deals, so maybe this is what we can expect. What? 
uh, should investors be watching out for this year? I think there's a few things to watch. I mean, high on everybody's list, including mine, is precisely what Donald Trump does. Um, as you just said, yeah, he's a businessman and to be successful in what he's doing here, at least in terms of de- de- delivering benefits for the US economy and his core constituency, which is basically middle America, um, you know, he doesn't want to go into a debil- debilitating trade war. But I think to me, it all come down, came down to whether we uh, get Trump the pragmatist, pragmatic businessman or Trump the populist. And I think so far, um, the, the signs still point towards Trump. Trump, the pragmatist. Um, but uh, moving on from Trump, there's a bunch of elections coming up in Europe, which will lead to the, the usual worries about Eurozone breaking up. And of course, the populists uh, are uh, feared to do well in those elections, uh, starting in the Netherlands in March, then France, uh, presidential election across uh, April and May. And then, of course, later this year in Germany and possibly also elections in Italy uh, as the year proceeds. So I, I think the Eurozone break up worries are going to be with us for some time to come. My feeling is they should be seen as buying opportunities because at the end of the day, I think Europeans, uh, still a majority of them anyway, support staying in the euro. And uh, that tells me that, uh, for example, Marine Le Pen in France will probably get through in the first round of presidential um, votes, make it to the second round. But I don't think she'll ultimately win that because I think the, the, the bulk of French support the euro and therefore they won't, the, 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 the majority of the population won't vote for her, even though she'll probably get 30, 35% or thereabouts. Um, similar story across other European countries. Beyond Europe, um, I think China is always worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Chinese growth last year stabilised. In fact, it picked up a little bit. Now the Chinese authorities are looking to slow it down a little bit. I don't think it's going to have the hard landing everyone seems to fear, but by the same token, as it slows a little bit, that might uh, cause a bit of angst periodically along the way. And then in Australia, I think the key is whether we bounce back from that September quarter 2016 contraction in the economy, and I think we probably will. Motor along in Australia at maybe around a 2.5% pace. Which is pretty much in keeping with the, well, the RBA's forecast 3%, but I mean, what's your view about that? Well, I, I think in the, in the short term, we, we probably did slow down a little bit. I, I mean, putting the September quarter aside, which looks like an aberration to me, I, I think growth probably bounced back in the December quarter. And I think the underlying pace um, was, was probably around 2.5%. And as we go through next year, we, we probably head back slowly towards the 3% number that the Reserve Bank's um, been talking about. I think, uh, I mean, in fact, I don't have any major differences with their growth views. I, I think my main concern would be that we spend longer with inflation below the 2 to 3% target than the Reserve Bank is allowing for, which then the longer we spend down there, the greater the risk that it becomes entrenched and will make it harder for them to, to ultimately get inflation back. So as a result of that, I sort of still sort of lean to the view that at some point the Reserve might have to cut interest rates again, even though they're not in a hurry. But it's really based on an inflation view rather than a, a growth view, where I think the, the growth story in Australia is, is sort of OK. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. So what do you think about that? Well, it's certainly been much better than expected. I was, I've was i been surprised. And it, and it hasn't just been the resources companies that have been putting in strong profits. No, it's going pretty well right across the board. Yeah, retail's still sort of shaky, though, isn't it? Retail's, retail's a bit so-so. But, uh, you know, look, at, at the same time, uh, you've got some great performances from other companies, which are non-mining companies. But you see new ideas coming into retail. I mean, for example, Meyer in Melbourne now has a Tesla electric car showroom up on the sixth floor. Isn't that brilliant? It's great. Linking it to their fashions. So now, Leon, 
the news. Well, Gary, Janet Yellen, the head of the US Fed, has signalled that the Fed could consider raising interest rates at its next meeting in March. And investors see about a 30% chance of an increase at the next meeting of the Federal Open Markets Committee. The markets are starting to warm to the idea that we could be looking at three US rate hikes over the next 12 months. Could be a spur for the RBA to raise rates, although there's an awful lot of worry about that in terms of the housing market. Meanwhile, three weeks into his presidency and Donald Trump appears to be adopting a more traditional US foreign policy stance, a position at odds with some of the more controversial statements that he professed about Asia and particularly China during the election campaign, and that means less likelihood of a trade war. The potential for Sino-US cooperation received a boost on Thursday when Trump told China's President Xi Jinping that the White House would honour the One China policy, under which Washington views Beijing and not Taipei, as a sole seat of government in China. The White House is also exploring new tactics to discourage China from undervaluing its currency to boost exports. That's part of an evolving Trump administration to challenge the practices of the US's largest trading partner while stepping back from direct confrontation. And that could be a sign the Trump administration is softening its stance on China. Now, of course, we remember during the presidential campaign, Donald Trump threatened to label China a currency manipulator on the first day of his administration, which he didn't do. He also threatened to slap a 45% tariff on Chinese good, an idea he hasn't raised recently. Problem China's got with Trump, of course, is that he started out his presidency by basically lying and, and he's proven that he's been sort of unreliable and it's a bit of a knee jerk and that worries the Chinese. That's right. Big worry. Can they trust him? Well, I think tr- and trust is very, very important when you're dealing with the Chinese. Indeed. Now, to Australia and business conditions have risen strongly according to the latest National Australia Bank monthly survey, suggesting economic growth will rebound following the September fall. The NAB monthly business conditions index jumped six points to 16 index points. That's well above the longer run average for the series and business confidence also posted a stronger result in the month rising four points to 10 index points still the nab's chief economist said uh, we shouldn't get too carried away with it he said the big question is whether the boost is temporary and influenced by seasonal factors so it's a case of watch this space very much and everybody does because of the big profits in the banks that's right and also the big problem with bad consumer confidence it's now subdued people are now expecting interest rate hikes Uh, The Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiments rose only 2.3% in February from 97.4% in January to 99.6% in February. And that puts it just below the 100-point level, and that means pessimists are outnumbering optimists. Now, according to the survey, 60% of respondents said rates are going to be higher in 12 months. That's well up on the 35% who expect rates to be steady and the handful at 5% who expect further rate cuts. And that means it's not a good time to buy a house. And there's a great deal of worry out there in, among the uh, recent home buyers of if you get a, a rate rise, how are they going to cope with the mortgage payment? And I think the other worrying thing is what implications that has for the housing industry. Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty soft in apartments and That's it could right. happen to houses as well. Now, the other interesting piece of news is that West Farmers is looking to sell office works on either a share market float or trade sale. Now, West Farmers Managing Director Richard Goiter said the company had commenced a strategic review of office works. Yeah, the office works doesn't have much competition, though. 
No, and it's making very healthy profits. Uh, I mean, West Farmers took it over in 2007. They really turned the business around. And it became one of the jewels in their crown. So it's it's really, really interesting. So watch that space. It'll either be a float or a trade sale. Float would be very interesting. Now, earnings by supermarket giant Coles have slipped 2.6% to $920 million for the half on the back of the supermarket wars, with a reinvigorated Woolworths and aggressively expanding Aldi. Food and liquor recorded sales of 2.2%, but overall sales fell 6.8%, excluding gains on the sale of Coles' interest in a number of joint venture properties. And all that discounting of grocery items has really hurt them. You know, Woolies has come back up as well, which is really bad news for them. Commonwealth Bank-owned West Bank West has confirmed it is axing negative gearing benefits when calculating loan eligibility borrowers. And the bottom line for new and existing borrowers is the amount of the loan is going to be lower. And Bank West says its serviceability calculators have been updated to remove negative gearing tax benefits. And the change might have massive implications for the Australia's $1 trillion mortgage market and 1.5 million property investors. And potentially that could put a dampener on property investment growth. Yeah, just another worry in the property market. Now, West Farmers has confirmed that its longtime group managing director, Richard Goyer, will retire this year and he'll be replaced by senior executive Rob Scott. And Scott, who heads West Farmers Industrial Division, will become the group's deputy chief executive officer, effective immediately, joining the board as managing director at the conclusion of the 2017 annual general meeting in November. Now, with 12 years at the helm, Goiter, who's 57, was expected to retire at the end of 2018. The handover comes earlier than expected. Now, I have to say, Gary, during his time at the helm of the company, Goiter took West Farmers through an extraordinary growth period. He took its market's value from $15 billion to almost $50 billion, and it was buoyed by the $20 billion acquisition of the Coles Group in 2007, and that was just before the global financial crisis. And I remember the market was concerned, but Goiter, to his credit, stared down the critics. He was proven right. Scott's going to be interesting because West Farmers God's got a few issues on its hands now because you've got Coles facing competition from a reinvigorated Woolworths and you've got growing competition from Aldi. And at the same time, they bought a UK hardware business, which they admitted was a renovator's delight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah B&Q. That's right. Yeah. So... He's got a few things on his plate. British DIY market is, however, very large, and if they can crack it, they'll make a lot of money. That's right. They can do a Bunnings over there. Now, the profit season is now in full swing, so here are the latest company reports, and there's a lot of them. So just bear with us here. JB Hi-Fi posted close to a 16% rise in statutory profit to $110.4 million on the back of sales which served 23.6% to $2.6 Australia's largest freight operator, Horizon Holdings, posted a net profit of $54 million for the six months through December, a big turnaround from the $108 million loss in the same period a year before. Packing giant Amcor posted a 3.8% rise in underlying net profit to US $308 million. Newcrest mining interim net profit more than doubled to US $187 million, that's $243.1 million Aussie, from US $81 million. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's net profit after tax crept up 0.1% to $209 million for the six months ended December 31st. Rubber gloves and condom maker Ansel's net profit in the six months edged up 0.3% to $69.8 million. Software business DWS Limited posted a 19% rise in first half net profit 
profit to 9.1 million. Insurance company Copermore posted a net profit of 8.6 million for the half year end of December. Engineering services provider Bradkin expected to deliver a net loss of 37 million for the half year. Lion Group delivered operating earnings before interest and tax of 694.3 million. That's a completely flat result following last year's earnings of 694.6 million. Operating net profit after tax rose 11.7 million to 280.1 million in the current year. Strong growth in the US and China saw Treasury Wine Estates more than doubling its earnings in the first half, booking a net profit of 136.2 million. That's what up. 132.4%. Telecommunications and software provider MNF's net profit after tax for the first half was up 21% to 4.9 million, with revenue climbing 9% to 91.4 million. Tech company GBST's net profit for the half year ended December 31st, surged 93% to 4.4 million. SG Fleet has reported a 35% rise in net profit after tax for December half to $26.6 million. C-Link Travel Group net profit after tax for the half year ended December 31st jumped 54.1% to $13.1 million. Reckon's net profit fell 25% the year ended December 31st to $11 million, down from $14.6 million the year before. GPT Group's full year net profit jumped 32.8% to $1.1.53 billion, with revenue climbing $21.6 billion to $1.549 billion. Cochlear's interim profit rose 19% to $111.37 million. Challenger Financial's net profit after tax for the half fell to $202 million. That's down from $234 million a year ago. Furniture retailer Nick Scarley's net profit after tax for the first half rose 45% to $20.5 million. Folkestone Education Trust Century Profit for the half rose 16.1% on a year ago to $69.1 million. Feedstock Supply Readley Cord's half net profit rose 37% to $14.1 million. Australia's biggest lender, Commonwealth Bank, has posted a record first half profit of $4.9 million. That's up 6% on the previous record reported in the first half last year. West Farmers interim net profit rose 13.2% to $1.58 billion. Domino's Pizza Enterprise interim profit from continuing operations rose 8.3% to $50.7 million. A2 Milk's net profit soared to New Zealand $39.38 million. That's $36.8 million Aussie in the December half. That's up from New Zealand $10.1 million a year ago. CSL's net profit for the half year to December 31st rose 12% to $806 million. Seven West Media's first half profit fell 91% to $12.4 million. Now, what did the damage there was a write-down in the value of its Yahoo 7 digital business, the sale of several youth magazines and the news channel on Sky News, and exiting the Presto on-demand movie channel. Building materials maker Borrell's first half profit is up 12.3% to $153.4 million. Pathology operator Sonic Healthcare reported a 5% rise in statutory net profit for the half year ended 31st of December of $197 million. Developer Villa World posted a net profit after tax of $19.6 million for the half year December 31st. Poultry producer Ingham's Group produced a maiden profit and it says it will meet its full year prospectus forecast after posting a maiden pro forma Half-year profit of $51.3 million, up 13.8%. Shopping centre-owner Vicinity Centres net profit more than doubled to $908.8 million six months to December 31st. Primary Healthcare's first half net profit dropped 69% to $21 million. Hunter Hall's International's first half profit fell 69% to $1.4 million. Mino Mount Gibson is back in the black. It posted a net profit of $22.9 million compared to a $15.4 million loss a year ago. Sims Metal has posted a profit after tax of $80 million for the first half compared with $250.1 million loss a year ago. So they're in the black. And Computer Share's net profit in the six months of December 31st surged 78.2% to $100. 150.15 million. 
So that's pretty impressive, Gary. Looks as though it's all you know, pretty healthy out there. Anyway, that's it for this week from us, Gary. And next week we're going to be talking to Miral Singh and Mugantan Siva. They are Indian fund managers. A very big company. They employ, I've forgotten how many tens of thousands of people back in India. And uh, they're looking for a bit of investment out here. Yeah, out in Australia. So that's going to be a very interesting discussion. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.